North of Normal, a podcast about Canadian cinema and our relationship with film. My name is Andrew Hunter Scully, and today we are discussing The Silent Partner, released in 1978, directed by Daryl Duke, written by Curtis Hansen, and based on the novel Think of a Number by Andrews Bodelson. And to discuss The Silent Partner, Colin Everett. Hi. How are you doing, man? Doing good. Doing good. Feeling good. Yes. Get the North of Normal weather report out really quickly. It's a weirdly <laughs> muggy September day. It's gross. Yeah, the, the air's not mo- There's wind, but it feels like nothing's moving. Mm. And I got a pretty good airflow in this apartment here. Anyways, we're talking about The Silent Partner, and I'm excited about this because I fucking love this movie. This one's solid. Uh, this is a movie that I've wanted to do on this show since day one. Like, when I was first thinking about North of Normal and I decided to do it on Canadian cinema, this movie was on the front of my mind. I have talked about this on other episodes, and this is to just address some of the emails and messages that I've gotten over the years asking why I haven't done certain films. Perfect example, this one, it just took time to get around to and to find the right person to talk to about it. Mm. There are a lot of Canadian films I would love to do, but so far the right guest hasn't come along to talk about it. So I'm very excited to finally get here and get to the silent partner. Yeah. So Colin, anything new with you since the last time you've been on? Not a lot. Done a lot of traveling, a lot of uh, seen a lot of shows, playing a lot of Mortal Kombat these days. Mortal Kombat of all games. I decided I was going to get good. It's going okay so far. Speaking of traveling, uh, this is just a little bit of a show note. Uh, I am going on vacation shortly after the recording of this, so there will be a little bit of gap in release of episodes, but Northern Normal will be returning. Uh, We do have episodes planned. And Colin, do you just want to get into it then? Yeah, let's dive into it. Do you want to try to describe The Silo Partner? Yeah, it's... um, So a bank teller realizes that an attempted and aborted robbery was going to occur and develops a plan to rip off the bank and frame the would-be robber. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. We've had a lot of genre sort of culty type films, but this is really one of those. Mm. This is kind of considered one of the better films to come out of the tax shelter period, mm-hmm. which we have talked about a lot on this show, which basically ran between 1975 and 1982. You and I personally have talked about a few of the movies to come out of this. Uh, a lot of them have not the greatest reputations, mm-hmm. or even if they are appreciated They wear the sort of lack of infrastructure in Canada and the slower budgets on their sleeves. They aren't necessarily fancy productions. However, The Silent Partner is really considered one of those films that really kind of showed the possibility of what could happen Mm -hmm. with this sort of tax shelter period of getting not only business investment, but actual Hollywood studios coming up to film film really good productions. This is a smart movie. This is a really good looking film. Mm -hmm. Really, it stands toe-to-toe with any sort of thriller, the 70s thriller. Yeah. That was kind of like its own thing. Kind of stands toe-to-toe with any of those. Yeah, I, I just always love this film. Yeah. I, I can't even remember where I first saw it. Uh, it was just, I think, a movie that I stumbled across. I'm like, hey, Elliot Gould is in this. I like Elliot Gould. And was really kind of blown away by not only how great it is, but also how odd it is. Yeah, it's it's actually like um, speaking of Gould, like he just has this 
fascinatingly oddball performance in this movie that I really like. Like it's 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 a little stilted, but it's good that way. He kind of reads as this strange, awkward but calculating man. Especially when you balance it against, let's say, Christopher Plummer's performance, mm. which is just completely unhinged and bizarre in its own right. Yeah, this movie is essentially about really fate bringing two opposingly opposite oddball characters in each other's orbit, and neither of them being able to let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it's you know, there's there's money stakes involved, and and some you know. Uh, escalating personal stakes as the, later into the movie, but ultimately it's mostly just that both of, neither of them can stand getting you know having one gotten over on them. Pretty much, yeah. Like just not able to just move on. Mm-hmm. So, not a ton of background on the Silent Partner, despite the fact that it has a big reputation. As I said, it is still kind of a cult film. It's a little bit out of the way for most people to find. It's not really in the forefront of film discussion because. We had watched it a few weeks ago, just as one of our sort of movie nights. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I've been thinking of doing this. Let's watch it, and you let me know if you'd want to do an episode on it. And you had never seen it before. No, this was all new to me. Yeah, you had never even really heard of it before, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and I thought you would be a good guest, because it is a great companion piece to a lot of the more schlocky tax shelter era stuff. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I want to give, show you an example of a better mm-hmm. example. And we'll, we'll just go over really quickly how an actual good film got made in Canada in the 1970s. Sometimes if you're throwing enough money around, it hits the right wall. That's a very good way to put it. So it is originally based on a novel that was published in 1969, as we said by Anders Boulderson. It is a Dutch novel originally. Uh, It had actually been adapted twice before. Uh, A Danish theatrical film was released in 1970 and a West German telefilm in 1972 it was written by curtis hansen and we will talk about curtis hansen a bit because he's a pretty interesting guy but at the time he was an aspiring director working as a screenwriter trying to get his foot in the door and he basically adapted this on spec when somebody says a script is done on spec it basically means it's done independently of it being commissioned by a studio or anything somebody writing it on their own hoping that'll be a sort of calling card or a way into the industry. And he was hoping that he would get a chance to direct the film, that this would be able to be like a sort of directorial calling card, but that didn't happen. It was picked up by uh, Carol Co pictures, an American independent producing company that was around from 1976 to 1995. Their most notable films are the first three Rambo films, total recall Terminator two and Stargate. So they have some pretty sizable hits under their belt. The Silent Partner was one of their first films, Hmm. and they took advantage of the Canadian tax credit for one of their early productions to cut costs right, and to get a deal. So that's why it ended up. So the script wasn't written to take place in Toronto, which I find really, really interesting because out of all the tax shelter films, this is the one that really makes Toronto a character. Like, it's not just incidental. This movie, I say this all the time, but might be the most Toronto movie. Right. Well, it takes place, uh, it's centered around the robbery of a bank in the Eaton Centre. Yes, and we will get to the Eden Center because more so than Toronto, the Eden Center is pretty much a character in this film. Mm. So the directing duties ended up going to a Daryl Duke. Like a lot of Canadian directors that we've done on the show, handful of directorial feature films. This is one of them. A lot of television. He's mainly a TV director, but really respected 
Uh, I think I read somewhere he's in like the British Columbia Filmmakers Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. <laughs> or something like that. One of those random facts that you kind of stumbled across. Uh, so Carol and Co. Yep, shot it in Toronto to take advantage of that tax credit for a budget of $2.5 million. I expect a lot of that probably went to the cast. Yeah. Which, yeah. which wouldn't be a surprise <laughs> because I know it was pretty cheap, even outside of the tax credit, to shoot in Toronto at the time. And, I mean, the big get is getting Elliot Gould, who said that it was the best screenplay he had read in a long time. So that was why he was willing to come on up to Canada and shoot this picture. There's a couple of things production-wise that I'm going to save until we talk about the scenes. Mm -hmm. Because there are a couple of interesting behind-the-scenes things here, but just for streamlined purposes, I will hold on to those for later. Uh, And we will get to these. Yes, obviously, the Eden Center, which I think had only been open for a year. Yeah, I, I, part of me wonders if they uh, cut them a deal on shooting there just as advertising. That's what I thought. Like, especially when the opening shot of the film is the sign of the Eden Center mm-hmm. on Queen Street. Yeah, and there's a there's a few uh, later in the film, there's a really nice uh, uh, kind of low-angled wide shot of uh, him walking through the lobby that looks very nice. So I can't say for certain, but they did shoot there. And the mall was open. Mm-hmm. While they were shooting as well. So I don't know logistically. Obviously we'll get to the shootout scenes. But obviously those would have to be extras. I would assume. Mm-hmm. If somebody's running around with a gun. But I could imagine if they're just shooting. You know Elliot Gould on his break. A lot of those people in the background might be actual customers. Mm-hmm. Wandering around which is kind of cool. And especially I have a really kind of weird nostalgia. Watching this film. Especially the beginning scenes that take place around Christmas. I think I brought this up to you after we watched the film. That it was a really big deal for me around Christmas. My father worked for Canada Life. And one of the big things we would do every year was to go downtown to the Canada Life Christmas party. It was always the same day as the Santa Claus Parade. Mm. Which is probably one of the more famous parades in Canada. Yeah. Like the Toronto Santa Claus Parade is a pretty big deal. Like it's televised every single year. You can watch it across the country. There aren't too many, you know, sort of, (laughs) especially holiday-centered parades that that happens with. And one of those things would be us going to the Eden Center. So, I mean, I was one years old when this movie came out, but especially in the early 80s, really the Eden Center looked like that with the Christmas decorations mm. and everything. So it kind of brought up a sort of memory that I didn't even know I had, yeah. if that makes any sense. Well, and there's design aspects of that mall that are familiar to anybody. There's those very 80s metal railings that like lived in everyone's local mall for years. Oh, for sure. And I didn't even know this until I was doing research. Apparently, like, Eden's, the Eden Center in downtown Toronto was kind of like a first big test that Eden's, which was a department store chain, it was kind of considered, you know, a sort of higher end department store. You know, not super fancy. I'm kind of thinking in the States, like, you know, Macy's is a chain that tends to be a little bit fancier than, you know, your targets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Eden's was. And they had commissioned architects and got in builders like all across the country this was a big thing for them to get you know big downtown malls like that was a big thing and one of the aspects of this film that we're going to talk about is the urban blight film Mm -hmm. that was kind of around at the time and this is kind of canada's answer to the sort of urban blight films of los angeles and new york at the time of you know just basically shitty dirty cities and using that as a sort of backdrop and a sort of tone to kind of affect the flavor of the film, basically. Right. 
But this was a big thing for Edens, and it was also kind of like a downtown revitalization thing to build these giant downtown malls across the country. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that this was something that Edens had a habit of doing, commissioning these sort of downtown malls and their names would be attached. And apparently they were called Eden Center across the whole country. Right. I'm I'm sure a lot of them are still in operation, but the Eden Center in downtown Toronto is just so iconic. It's the only one that still maintained the Eden Center name. Mm Mm-hmm. After Eden's closed down, what like over a decade ago? Yeah, it is funny that the the uh, the the whole complex still has the namesake, and the department store is doesn't exist anymore. But that's as the far only one, and I think yeah. it's because it is the most famous one, and everyone in Toronto would. It's like the Skydome, right? Nobody in Toronto, unless you're really young, calls it the Rogers Center or really new to the right. city. Like I still refer to the Rogers Center as the Skydome. And as I said, we'll be coming around to some of these things aspects a little bit later. I just really wanted to get out of the way. Usually we talk about the director in some detail. This is one of the rare cases we're going to talk about Curtis Hansen, the writer of this film who adapted it, uh, hoping that it would be a calling card. Because I never put two and two together. I didn't realize that Curtis Hansen not only wrote, but also directed one of my favorite films on the face of the planet, mm-hmm. which is L.A. Confidential. Yeah, and when you can, it's funny because watching the two of them really close together, you can see a lot of that DNA in there of this really tightly wound, like a movie built like a chess puzzle. You really can, and it's always kind of a nice, happy accident when I get to, even if really briefly, talk about films that I love that aren't Canadian on this show, uh, because entertainment industry has weird tendrils everywhere. You might never know what would connect, but yeah, and you know, he also directed Eight Mile. The Eminem movie. Yeah, and he also did Wonder Boys, a movie that I have a really big soft spot for, starring Michael Douglas, uh, Tobey Maguire, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. Oh, wow. When Robert Downey Jr. was, like, this was 2000, right? So this was when Downey Jr. was on the outs, and basically people were doing favors. Right. Casting him in the movies. This would be one to maybe chalk up for a movie night sometime, because it's a movie hardly anybody has seen, but, like, there are certain friends that I have inside jokes that are quoting that film. (laughs) So, yeah, again, he's one of those weird directors that you don't really think about who the director is when you watch the film. Mm -hmm. And he's just kind of one of those guys. He sadly passed away a few years ago. He had to stop working relatively early because of dementia, which was associated with his illness. But he has put out some really decent films out there. And considering L.A. Confidential got a lot of awards recognition, really isn't talked about a lot. Yeah, it's funny for for such a... um a short sort of list of work. It's such an accomplished one. And man, like because of watching this, I made you watch uh, LA confidential. Yeah. Which I, I, I can't believe it took someone making me to get around to that. Cause it's a great movie. It definitely is. Okay. Where to start with the silent partner? I guess the best way, cause this is a tough movie to talk about. Cause there are twists and turns in it. As a spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about the very end of the film, but we'll save it for the end of recording. So if people are listening to this and they decide that they would much rather watch the film first, it's up on YouTube. So if you really want to, at least as of uh, a couple of days ago, it was still up on YouTube. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie already and you decide from us talking about it that you want to know what happens yourself before you hear us talk about it, it will be coming at the end of the episode. But we'll Mm -hmm. keep it relatively light for spoilers, just basic character stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about Elliot Gould who plays the, I almost said world-weary, but it doesn't look like he gets around a lot. Just wary. Yeah. <laughs> just um, just kind of um, just a, a I don't know, a, a, a put-upon sort of 
bookish nobody. Yeah, named Miles Cullen. And he is one of the odder characters I think I've seen as a lead in a thriller. Like, sometimes, especially, like, in, like, Hitchcock films, you'll get the sort of everyman character, as much as somebody like Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant can be an everyman. Mm. But he's kind of like an everyman who just, yeah, doesn't get out a lot. Right, like, he's he's a little bit of a loser, but, like, not that, like, he's just kind of normal. He's just a guy, and that's, it's, it's why it's... Interesting the direction so interesting the directions he goes as he gets swept up in this this whole caper. It almost seems like he figures out that he has a pulse. Yeah. You know, when he comes up with this little harebrained scheme of his. And I mean to talk about Elliot Gould really quickly, I've always really liked Elliot Gould. I think the first place I saw him was a movie he did a few years earlier, which was the film Mash mm. that the TV show was based on. I saw that at a very early age because my mom was just a huge fan of Mash. So it's sort of part and parcel that you would watch the film as mm. well. But yeah, he's one of those actors that I always really like popping up over the years. Uh, this is just a really interesting time for leading men in Hollywood because, yeah, you had, you know, your Robert Redfords, but you also had, as sex symbols, people like Dustin Hoffman and Elliot Gould. Yeah. And that's not to say that Elliot Gould isn't an extremely handsome man, because we will talk about how attractive the people in this yeah. film are, definitely. But much like Dustin Hoffman, you could... S- you can get the charming sort of grinning performances out of them where you're like, oh, this is why you were considered one of the sexiest men alive. But they can also turn on a dime and be utterly believable mm-hmm. in this role as a sort of nepish humdrum of a man. Yeah. Who's just really into his fish and playing chess by himself. Right. And I mean, just running down the cast really quickly. We have Susanna York, who's a very odd character. Uh, playing Julie Carver, who's kind of a love interest for Elliot Gould. And it starts off that Elliot Gould is kind of maybe pining after her. You kind of, he's so sexless at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film, it's kind of hard to figure out. Well, and it's, it, it's because he's so sexless, you, you get the sense of why she is turning him down, you know, because she's just like, who even are you? Yeah. And just to note, Susanna York, British actor. Uh, so we have our... Under the tax credit, you can have two non-Canadian lead actors in your film. Everybody else, including the supporting cast, had to be Canadian. So that's, we have Susanna York and Elliot Gould. But she, I really do like her in the film. One review that I read made a really good job noting that the character kind of swings a lot in terms of what her intentions are mm. and her temperament. Sometimes she's a cold fish. Sometimes she's a little bit more of a sex pot. And they gave kudos to Susanna York for pulling that off and make it seem like a cohesive character mm-hmm. that it's not too tone deaf and I read that review before I did my rewatch so I was really watching her performance and that review is absolutely right mm-hmm. that that character what her seeming intentions are can flip on a dime and she does a really good job selling it obviously in the supporting roles we have a lot of Canadian character actors Really, the only key one to point out is an early film role of John Candy. Yeah, that was a, a weird appearance, and he's not really in it for much or does a whole lot of anything, but it's just, I don't know, it's just neat to see him just kind of pop up. In a really small role, like, I think he's just one of the customers, is another SCTV alum, one that people forget about, Tony Rosato. Right. Was he the guy making all the deposits? Or was he, work at, was he one of the guys who worked at the bank? It's a very minimal role. I think the only reason why he comes up on this cast list is his association to SCTV. Right. But it's just interesting. SCTV started in 1976. So, assuming that this film 
released 78, probably started shooting in 77. I don't know for sure. There aren't that many details. So these guys are just working on a small Canadian TV show. They'll be jobbing just like anybody else, right? So it's very unlikely that they were like, hey, John Candy, do you want a role? This is probably John Candy, working actor. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It is absolutely cool that he does pop up in this sort of supporting role that you do expect for him to figure in more. Mm-hmm. But I think that is only because you're like, Hey, John Candy. Right. The sleazebag boss, you don't go, hey, I expected the boss to be in this a lot more. Right. Because who the hell plays the boss? I'm not even (laughs) going to bother looking it up. But until we get a little bit more later on, until the twists and turns, only other really supporting character to really mention is the John Candy role. Yeah, and there's just a really weird setup. I really do like the idea with the script that they do really kind of explore what the sort of working balance is within the bank itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they do have the subplots with like John Candy and a couple of other characters mm-hmm. going on. Why they bother working in with Susanna York's character that weirdly she's having an affair with the boss who is married. So the boss makes Elliot Gould take her to functions where his wife mm-hmm. is going to be. Yeah. So she has a date and somebody to talk to, which is just a really weird Set up at the beginning of the film, which actually kind of weirdly reminded me of uh, the Wilder film, The Apartment. I don't know if you've ever seen that one with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Kind of a simple premise, boss basically taking advantage of his employee, one employee, so he can get away with having an affair with another employee. And it's only a small element, but especially during my rewatch, I was like, huh, yeah, kind of like The Apartment. I wonder how much and how much still you have situations of bosses taking advantage to cover up. Mm indiscretions in the workplace. But the reason why I like them going through that so much is that you do get a sort of sense of, especially when Elliot Gould starts to wake up a little bit as a human being, when he gets the stimulation of the scheme that he gets, just how much of a humdrum existence Mm -hmm. it can be. And just sort of, you know, petty comments, interwork politics, like the movie, not exhaustively, Mm -hmm. like it doesn't go off the rails that you're checking your watch, but does take the time, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when they're explaining policies and, you know, talking about how, you know, info dumpy scenes where they're like explaining that there's a lot more money in the bank right now because mm-hmm. it's around Christmas tend to work in a little bit more organically. Yeah, well, yeah, and it and it builds up into aspects of sort of this the whole scheme as it sort of unfolds and develops, where like where he is sort of playing with how you how like like you you know you understand how the dynamics of him his boss and his coworkers work, and that ties into how he sort of executes on on the scheme later in the movie. Yes. And let, let's start talking about this scheme. Cause I don't think it's a spoiler to say what the premise of the film mm-hmm. is. Essentially Elliot Gould's character, Miles, I'm just going to say Elliot Gould because yeah. whenever I'm watching the movie, I don't <laughs> think of his name. I think, Hey, there's Elliot Gould. He comes across. What are those things? The, the sort of carbon of the check. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a carbon copy. Um, um, Thing you know, like like it, people don't have checkbooks anymore, but you would there would be like a carbon copy thing on the back that would um, copy your writing onto a back page to create a duplicate uh, receipt. Yes, and while he's cleaning these up, he comes across one that he does the pencil trick on mm-hmm. and sees that it was a stick up note. Mm-hmm. So he realized that somebody was in the bank that day planning to rob it. Uh, just to go over. Elliot Gould, who is the vault teller, mm-hmm. that it is, that's his job position. Uh, so essentially because he is the one with access to the vault, he is kind of responsible for all the money in the bank. And they don't go into his thought process. There's not really an aha moment. Mm-hmm. You just kind of start to see him emptying an old lunch pail 
that he yeah. has at home. And he comes in and throughout the day, the next day, he starts siphoning off the money. So mm-hmm. instead of putting all the money in his till, he'll then put some into this lunchbox mm-hmm. of his. And sure enough, when... I was going to say the mall Santa, but it's not really. It's kind of like the Salvation Army standing there kind of mm-hmm. donate to the poor. Makes me think that any money that he got... He's a pretty scary looking Santa. I don't yeah. think he would get too much money, <laughs> but I figured he would just pocket Come to think of it, there aren't a lot of motivations explained. Like, you never find out why Christopher Plummer wants to rob the bank, other than he's crazy and... I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it kind of explains itself. He's he's a career criminal who wants to rob a bank. He doesn't really need a lot of other extra motivation. In one of the highest profile areas in the country <laughs> right. at that time. It's such an interesting choice of robbery target, a, a bank in a mall. I remember thinking how strange that is. It's like, I guess maybe I've just watched a lot of movies and I think the best thing is to be able to run away quickly. <laughs> well, I was going to say, that's a big thing in almost every single bank movie. Or when you watch those YouTube videos, right. experts explain scenes <laughs> in movies, they always go like, yeah, you need an escape route. Right. You know, and the worst escape route is just running out into a crowd of people. Right. The arm- During Christmas. The armchair bank robber in me says you need a door right there and a guy on a motorcycle. And if people don't know this, with the, I love how we just jump to after the bank heist instead of explaining, <laughs> but like... The Eden Center is the busiest mall in the country, mm-hmm. not just because of people going there to shop, but it's on top of an intersection of two major subway routes that one of the exit points is through the mall. Mm-hmm. So particularly in the winter, a lot of people will go up through the mall to just stave off the cold for a little bit of time because it is such a big mall. You can cut through the mall mm-hmm. and pretty much for an entire city block. And also is tied to some of the tunnel networks that run throughout the city. So it's a lot of traffic because of that as well. And I know at that point, yeah, because you see Elliot Gould on the subway at one point, on the TTC, that the subway was built at that point. So you would, especially at Christmas, have the extra traffic. So long story short, (laughs) sure enough, Christopher Plummer, who is the scariest looking Santa, maybe ever without special effects added on, Uh, Sure enough, comes in to rob the bank, and of course, he empties the till, but he only gets a fraction of the money because Elliot Gould kept the rest. Mm. An alarm goes off. Christopher Plummer does have to make a quick escape, again, through the mall, which means that this is the most impractical decision of a place to rob. Yeah, he goes up the escalator, the busiest choke point of the entire mall. (laughs) At least we know that he's not exactly the most mentally sound character. Yeah. But anyways, long story short, Elliot Gould is like, aha, I got away with this. But the catch is when there is a news report, they announce how much money was actually stolen, which alerts Christopher Plumber to the fact of, hey, how come I only got a fraction of this? And now the police are on my tail. So he basically gets a bug up his butt, not only to get the full share of money, like mm. not cut his losses and be like, mm. okay, at least I got away, but to get all the money and basically fuck with Elliot Gould. Mm-hmm. Like not just threaten him, like seriously fuck with him. At which point Elliot Gould ends up in a cat and mouse game because he can't call out Christopher Plummer and call the police because then Christopher Plummer will tell them what he did mm-hmm. to get his chunk of the money. Kind of a cool setup. Yeah, it's great. It's 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 really cool because yeah, because uh, the initial robbery is is such a small part of it, and the rest is just them like trying to like trying to to like the the loot is almost secondary. It really is just trying to win. And a, an obsessive for Christopher Plummer and more of a game for Elliot Gould. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I like about Elliot Gould's performance. One thing Elliot Gould does really well is that very slight, subtle twinkle of curiosity mm-hmm. in the eye. 
you know, just something going on in the brain that you're like, what's going on? And he does that in a lot of roles, particularly in his sort of more charming early career. Mm-hmm. He just has that sort of charming look to himself, that sort of twinkle that is magnetic, but also like, what's going on in your brain? Yeah, there's there's a thing he kind of does physically. It, it's almost like a Christopher Reeve turning into Superman thing, like his like his like where his shoulders square up, and all of a sudden he's just a different person. The way he stands when he's high on the 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 intoxicating aspect of all the all the things he's doing well especially you know you can see why Susanna York would actually genuinely be starting to become attracted to him throughout Mm -hmm. the film because he is gaining this confidence and again it's a really subtle performance it's not extreme and I was mentioning to Colin before recording this is the first time that I'd watched the movie twice in relatively quick succession like we watched we watched it together what about a month ago yeah just about and then I rewatched it yesterday Mm mm-hmm just to kind of have it fresh on my brain after doing research. That's what I do just to see if I notice anything more from mm-hmm. doing research. And I think my rewatch was the most I had ever enjoyed this film mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stuff. You appreciate a lot more of the subtleties in the performances. Like it's fresher in your brain, you know, without going a few years without watching it. Mm. You really appreciate the sort of setup and payoffs that happen. that when you watch and it's been a long time, or if you've never seen it before, you don't realize their setups. Mm-hmm. That kind of pay off later yeah. in the film in really small ways. And that's the thing. Until you start getting to the end of this film, it is a really subtle cat and mouse film. Mm-hmm. There's nothing too over the top outside of Christopher Plummer. The twists aren't so drastic to be completely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. In fact, the twists are more like classic crime capers, just shitty things happening. Yeah, Not a zinger gotcha, but oh my god, the maid threw out the key. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's... it's um... These in, in you know all all these elaborate you know master strokes of plotting genius, and then they're upended by random chance and small mistakes, and basically trying to figure your way out of them while not getting caught. Exactly, especially while the scene of the crime is your place of work that you have to be every single day, <laughs> right? Which is another interesting aspect that you don't see in these sort of. This movie gets talked about as being a thriller film and not a bank heist film, but it is a bank heist film where you never leave the bank. Mm-hmm. Again, cool concept. Yeah. There's a lot of cool ideas here that you don't see a lot. Now, let's talk about Christopher Plummer. Because I <laughs> uh, wanted to wait until we talked about the setup and how we're introduced to him to talk about his performance. Christopher Plummer, Canadian acting icon. One of those wonderful actors that will do critically acclaimed performances. Like, my God, how good is he in Knives Out? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, he's so good in that. By the way, we are seeing the new Knives Out in theater together. Oh, I didn't know that was coming to theater. Hell yeah. Yeah, Netflix is releasing it before on theater, in theaters. Spectacular. We both really love Knives Out. It's great. The Ryan Johnson film. We didn't see it in the theater together, but we have watched it, I think, a couple of times together. Yeah, we might have, yeah. Because <laughs> we'll be like, what do you want to watch? And for a while, we would just default to Knives Out. <laughs> right. Uh, weird side tangent, but it, Christopher Plummer in a mystery thriller heist movie type things. Uh, so he'll do that, but he'll also be a fucking Klingon general. Right. <laughs> I really equate him closely to Max von Sydow about that. Mm. He would do his shit with Igmar Bergman, but then do Strange Brew. Right. Game for anything. Working actors will take the roles and bring 100% to every single one in them. Christopher Plummer, as well, is in a very interesting point in his career. This isn't the first time he had played the villain, but this is he's gone extreme in this one. Like, mm. just chewing up scenery left, right, and center. Even more so than he does in High Rise. Oh, yeah. To bits. This was still when Christopher Plummer was famous for being in The Sound of Music. Right. Internationally, that was his most famous role. And he 
hated being associated with The Sound of Music. Really? He thought it was a smaltzy film, and he has says openly that he never would have done it if he realized that that would be the role he would be most associated with. Right. Obviously playing the father of the Von Trapp family in that right. film. He would even refer to The Sound of Music, not by its name, but by his own twist of the name, S&M. <laughs> That's really good. Which is ironic, considering his character in this <laughs> film. So he was really going, trying to go against stereotypes as mm. much as possible at this point, because... He was not expecting how successful The Sound of Music was going mm. to be. And this is a perfect example of it. One of the reasons why I wanted to wait until we explained the setup, because as soon as we talk about the sort of shifts in performances, with a lot of the characters, now that I realize, with mm-hmm. Susanna York, with Elliot Gould. Yeah, there's kind of a lot of uh, dual identity stuff. I yeah, guess I it. when he takes off the Santa suit, when he jumps into the getaway car... Which, again, for the bad escape, doesn't have set up. <laughs> he has to steal a getaway car to get away with his part of the loot in a Santa outfit, which is widely conspicuous. <laughs> Man, I know he probably wore the Santa outfit because, you know, like when people put tape on their glasses when they rob a bank, they figure people will only see the tape and they'll be able to describe them less. Right. But still, a Santa running with the gun is highly conspicuous and easy to follow. Regardless, the more I realize Christopher Plummer really is a bad bank robber, When he is in the car and he takes off the Santa suit and you see him without the bushy eyebrows and the fake beard and the hat for a second, he's taking off his shirt. At least I am like, holy fuck. Yeah. Oh, he can get it in this movie. He is immediately (laughs) smoldering right when he takes off. This is a movie chock full of some extremely attractive people. And I didn't think I would ever say that Christopher Plummer is by far and away the hottest yeah. fucking person in this movie. I mean, they do really sex him up, though, a lot. They put him in, like, mesh shirts. They give him, like, kind of smoky eyeliner. Yeah, well, I mean, they kind of borrow from the Disney tradition of of sort of gently to, to str- mild uh, to moderately queer-coded villain. They do, and they never expressly say, you know, like, he never becomes ro- romantically involved with anyone. There's a really shocking scene earlier on where... After he finds out about the heist, you figure that he's worked up and he goes to the sauna where presumably, I've seen it describe a prostitute comes in mm. to the sauna. So apparently this was a prearranged meeting and basically not only just sexually assaults, but really physically assaults mm. this woman. And this is really, it's, you wouldn't have this scene in the film now. Mm-hmm. It's the only scene in the film, well, one of two scenes that I'm like... This goes from fun cat and mouse game to being mm. maybe a little problematic in a right. couple of scenes. And it's it's like, it's used as a setup for him to get picked up by the cops later, but only just to the point that you could absolutely remove it or replace it with something else. You could, but, you know, I think it's there to set up just how dangerous sure. this person is and unhinged. And you presume then that he was procuring a female prostitute. Mm. So one would assume that he does have an interest in women, but you're right. It might just be the shorthand, lazy, queer quoting a character to paint them as being insidious. Yeah. And if you want to know more about what we're sort of talking about, there's a really fantastic documentary out there called The Celluloid Closet Mm. that you can track down on various streaming services. I think for a while it was on Canopy. It's a really great documentary about the history of how homosexuality was portrayed on films all the way back to the silent era. Mm -hmm. And one of those aspects is, yeah, queer coding a character to make them instantaneously uh, recognizable as being villain. Right. 
Uh, a famous example of this is Peter Laurie in the Maltese Falcon mm-hmm. as well. The character comes on, is effeminate in some way. Oh, this person is up to no good. No. It's a shitty trope. I'm not defending it. But it is important to discuss it's, when it, it comes to this character. To my mind, and your mileage may vary, it does feel a little less gross here than I've seen it elsewhere. It is because the character is just so fucking unhinged anyways, yeah. and his motivations are so unclear, that he could just he could be totally asexual and just do it because what the fuck, why not? Yeah. In that way, he's almost like a character out of a David Lynch film. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Dean Stockwell in like Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. where he comes across as effeminate, but it's just part of the tapestry right. of Lynch's universe. Yeah. You just don't expect it too much. Yeah. But just another example of that sort of stuff going on. And yes, there are problematic things, but this is maybe my favorite Christopher Plummer performance, despite some of those elements. Mm-hmm. Because he is just so good and menacing, and you totally buy it. And it's one of those movies, because of the cat and mouse nature, there aren't many scenes of Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer together. But I never thought I would enjoy them as a pairing. Mm-hmm. Because when they are on screen together, it is really great. One of those, like, I never expected that it would be cool. Yeah. To see these two together. So that kind of hits upon Christopher Plummer and explaining what his deal is. Uh, yeah, always surprising. And whenever I talk to anybody who's never seen it before, they're really surprised by Christopher Plummer's performance. Yeah. And sort of the weird sexual energy it's also, that he's I, bringing to it. I just think about it how, when you sort of mentioned the, the scenes in which they're on screen together. There's actually very few in which they are in the same frame. Typically they are... They are always on the other side of something from each other. Like it's either either it's the uh, the the payphone at the street level outside of Elliot Gould's character's apartment, or it's like directly outside his door through his mail slot. There's always this. There's always the peering at each other. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's entirely possible. Maybe with schedules that you know they could shoot those scenes and not even have them in the same room. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, the only time that you see shots of the two of them in the same frame is at the very end of the film. Yeah, which again we will get to. The only other actor to bring up who's a really interesting presence in this film is a Caroline Lomez as Elaine, who's a Quebecois actor. Really charming presence. Mm -hmm. She comes in a little bit later on as a sort of, I guess, love interest for Elliot Gould's character. Yeah, somewhere between a genuine love interest and a femme fatale, I suppose. Yeah, pretty much. She pops up after Elliot Gould's father passes away. She comes up maintaining that she was a nurse in the nursing home that Mm -hmm. worked with the father and kind of inserts that way and runs into him at a park. I was super curious about the source novel for a couple of reasons. So I read a plot synopsis of the original novel because there are a couple of things we're going to talk about in a bit that I was really wondering how things played out Mm -hmm. in the original source novel. So I did, it was kind of tough online, but I did eventually track down. It is one of those ones. I didn't even think about it until today. There, there are like super cheap copies of it online that if I thought about it, like even a couple of weeks ago, I might've ordered like a $4 paperback just to fucking read it, just to find out because there are some changes from the source material, but apparently her character Ends up having a lot of her own motivations. In right. this film, she's sent by Christopher Plummer basically to try to figure out where the money is. To butter well, him up and figure yeah. out where the money is. And you get the idea that she does actually develop some genuine affection. Yeah, and you do, get, you do get a bit of that in the movie where she does kind of have a change of heart part part of the way through. But yeah, yeah, I suppose you probably get a lot more of her interiority in the book. 
Well, apparently in the book, she just has a, as much agency as to what's going on and trying to get the money for herself. Right. Oh, okay. She's a third part. It's like um, a cat and a mouse in a dog game. Right. Or for like cat, mouse, canary. I, I don't know. There's got to be a better metaphor when it's three ways. <laughs> True. <laughs> However, uh, apparently she has a lot more agency in right. the book that way, which keeps like everybody on their toes as to what's going on. Right. Now, in the movie, she just ends up being... The sort of winsome young ending up being fridged, basically. More or less, yeah. And we'll talk about that scene. But I just wanted to touch upon her. She is a big presence in the film. I I went down her list a lot of Quebec acting. I, I just think she's a really fun, charming presence in the film. Yeah. And like I said, ends up being maybe not the best drawn out character, but like Susanna York does a really good job of selling the character and basically acting through what through somebody else might be a questionable mm-hmm. motivation yeah. of character. So before we talk about the end, there are a couple of side things that I wanted to talk about tangentially about the film. As you brought up beforehand, Oscar Peterson scores this film. Yeah. With some, uh, with some interesting sound design in it, there's, there's a effect I noticed and it's, it's, um, it's used a few times of like having, certain peaks in the music dovetail into, like, sound effects and Foley. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene in which, like, uh, um, I, th- I think when he first gets a call from Christopher Plummer's character, like, staring at him into his apartment, like, there's this really big, peaking, tense violin thing that, that sort of cuts into, like, the phone ringing. There is a lot of fun stuff like yeah. that. And your comment was, like, you always forget that Oscar Peterson did the score for this, and I think mm. one of the reasons that you would expect it to be more jazzy. Right. Because if people don't know, Oscar Peterson... Maybe Canada's most famous jazz musician. Yeah, arguably. At least until Diana Krall came along, if you want to try to pass that off as jazz. <laughs> you know, she, she's a huge selling artist, yeah. right? But in terms of what you think of as a classic jazz musician, yeah. Oscar Peterson is probably Canada's best known offering. I mean, Canada has some really great jazz. Mm-hmm. I go to some local jazz locally, yeah, which I greatly enjoy. But in terms of like, high profile you would put their name up there with like a charlie parker or charles mingus right the the kind of uh, the 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 um core metric of any canadian artist can we export it to america exactly would americans know who this person is <laughs> and i think that's one of the reasons you kind of forget you know that it's oscar peterson famous canadian musician scoring mm-hmm. it because it sounds so unlike what you would expect from a jazz musician mm-hmm. but really good job yeah I mean, he, cle- he clearly wanted to branch out and do something interesting. I mean, and also, like, yeah, if you're, people are throwing around that tax shelter money, get paid, do something cool and interesting, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you would think it's a weird fit until you sort of frame it that way of just, like, what a great opportunity to collect a paycheck and do something fun and new. Well, it's also, th- there's always a debate about scores. Some people maintain, you know, much like sound design, some of the best scores are ones that don't call attention to themselves. Mm. There are people like Hans Zimmer, or a John Williams, or God forget, forbid, a Danny Elfman, mm. that you can pick up a lot of the time when you're listening to a score if that person wrote that score. Inflicting their sound in there. But then there are other composers, like what Oscar Peterson did, is that he's not bringing his style to it. Mm-hmm. He's tailoring a soundscape that makes sense for the film. Yeah, and I think it does a really great job of of really building and maintaining the the mood and the atmosphere of the movie. Now, in terms of atmosphere of the movie, first off, I'm going to get this out of the way. When you read reviews, especially contemporary reviews of The Silent Partner, a lot of people make cracks like, 
if you can get past the fashion, this is a thrilling little film and stuff like that. And I'm like, I fucking love the clothes in this movie. Oh, they're great. Yeah. Anyone who takes a pot shot at the clothes in this can fuck right off because this is a great looking movie. 70s as fuck. And I'm here for it. Yeah. Right. No, it's, it's doing as like the 70s are just such a, a, a different beast. Everything leaves. Everything is just the most. The colors are gigantic. Like it's just, it's, it's great. It's, I think it's great. It just depends. It like, I think those people just have a problem separating their taste from what is go- actually good or bad. It is really bright, but it is also very dismally brown. Yeah. Keep in mind, we do have a scene where Elliot Gould brings Celine Lomez as Elaine as a wedding date. And there is a scene of them on the beach where they are both wearing tan. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the only, this is a really well shot film. I mean, tan suits on the beach, you know, I'll give those reviewers credit for that one. By all means, Daryl Duke, you did a really great job directing this thing. Maybe the set designer. <laughs> I, I didn't look up who it was, but maybe the set designer just called in sick that day or something. <laughs> to be like, maybe you should have something that pops a little bit more on the beach. But for the rest of it, it looks great. And speaking of set design, let's talk about Elliot Gould's apartment. Mm-hmm. I love his apartment. It's great. Oh, yeah. Really great fixtures. Really great arches in between the rooms. He has, like, the world's largest chess set. Like, I've seen bigger novelty chess sets, but I I don't know why. They're just the biggest chess pieces, I guess, or it's more dramatic when he gets petulant and knocks them over. Well, and, and a lot of the set deck in that apartment, you know, is is doing a lot of work telling you about this guy. The, the two biggest things in her apartment are the chess set he plays alone and his fish tank. And a lot of really good lighting, especially when they dim the lights on the fish tank in the background, casting light everywhere. Now, you know this... I'm sure if anybody's listened to the show a lot, sometimes my research takes me into funny places and I have to share the information. People know that I'm a set design nerd. I did go to school for a bit for design. I didn't finish. Life happens. But I did go for a couple of years. And tangentially, like many interests, you get interested in, even if superficially, connected pursuits. Right. I also really have an appreciation for architecture. You know me, I like character places. Mm. I don't like sterile apartment buildings. I hate most modern architecture. Let's talk about the, really briefly, because I find it interesting, the actual history of Elliot Gould's home. Like the, the specific the unit and the whole building. Yeah, because there are two major locations in this that really speak to Toronto's character. This is kind of mm-hmm. my entry point into talking about this, because we do have to talk about Toronto, where Toronto was at the time that this film was made. Mm-hmm. Especially since this wears Toronto on its sleeve. Again, it's not like other films like Black Christmas, where it's filmed in Toronto, but, you know, they'll put American flags on things. And like The Fly, how they'll actually be, like, doling out American money. Mm -hmm. Just, I guess, not to be distracting. This wears this Canadian nature on its sleeve, which I find super interesting, Mm -hmm. considering writer is American, production company is American. Like, they didn't have to adapt it to be a Toronto film. Mm -hmm. And I've not come across as to where or why that decision was made. So, Elliot Gould's building is the Abernathy. It existed on 6 Howard Street, which, if you know Toronto at all, is a Sherburne and Bloor area. It was a building that was built in 1914. It is a three-story walk-up. The interesting thing about this is that for a three-story building, they had to get special permission from the city that had a no-apartment bylaw. That Toronto, now home of the CN Tower... The tallest standing structure 
formerly tallest standing structure in the world, had a law about having buildings above two stories in residential areas. Oh, wow. Now, I know (laughs) some cities do have that in effect. When I first moved to Victoria in the early 2000s, they had a law that no buildings could be above five stories. Mm. They were quickly getting rid of that around the time that I moved there because, like most cities, they're fucking whoring themselves out to condos and condo building developments. But that was a rule in Victoria for a long time. You couldn't have any buildings over five stories tall. But it is fascinating for a city of even Toronto's size. It was much smaller, but Toronto's size in 1914. That This was still a bylaw, so it was very, very interesting. So this sort of building was really popular with sort of like young professionals, sort of doctors, clerks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Especially when, especially in urban environments, when men would go out and not necessarily get married right away and live on their own. Right. You know, that's where these sort of apartment buildings were really popular, especially with professionals. You know, they don't need a big house because they aren't getting married right out of college. The original bachelor apartment, back when that was more than, you know, 15 square feet. Where it was just a place (laughs) where a dude lived on his own. So it's kind of interesting in just the history of development of apartment buildings, but also in terms of Toronto history. Especially at this point, because like a lot of downtowns, there was a lot of urban blight. Mm -hmm. A lot of things running down. Uh, This building had seen better times by this point. Apparently, in the time of the silent partner, this is not the greatest neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, these buildings had less to be left to dilapidate, and a lot of these buildings were being torn down mm. around this time and being replaced with better buildings. Surprisingly, the Abernathy, the actual building, did survive until 2006. Oh, wow. When the roof collapsed. Oh, well. <laughs> I but mean, I, I guess... wanted to bring that <laughs> up because we very rarely talk about, like, the reflections of the city yeah. in these sort of films. And I did mention last episode, I'm going to get better with my sources. This is from a fantastic book called Toronto Locations on Film Mm -hmm. that I came across, that I assembled across today. We had to delay recording for a little bit, so (laughs) I decided to take a flip through a couple more film books. And this is on a later chapter from where they talk specifically about The Silent Partner, which is about architecture in Toronto in film. Do they have... So I'm just flipping through. I'm like, oh, there's another picture from The Silent Partner. I came across this fascinating history of the building. Do they have anything about... There's a scene later where they're sort of pouring a concrete foundation. There's a whole construction site. Is is that the site of an actual building now? Like, where where was that? One of the sources said that... And we will get into this because a body... We're not officially, but we're starting to get into what might be considered a little spoilery. Mm. There is a body that is disposed of later on in the film. It is decided that the body will be disposed of a foundation of what is purported to be the bank's new vault. Mm-hmm. But one of the books cited said that because of the location, they figured out it is probably actually the sort of multi-level parking lot. Right. Of the Eden Center. So that, that that's what the one source. Right, I guess because... That I mean, had came across. Based on how old the mall itself was, I guess, yeah, they would have been still putting that stuff up. Yeah. Right. And like I said, the Eden Center is featuring so prominently, which is why I went into the history of the building and kind of what those sort of buildings were like at the time, being contrasted with the Eden Center, which is kind of an attempt to kind of revitalize downtowns and to, along with the sort of tax shelter, Toronto starting to try to entice film productions to come up. We don't have Hollywood North yet as to what it will become, but Toronto trying to become more of a cosmopolitan city. Mm-hmm. You know, up until the 70s, the coolest city in Canada by far and away was Montreal. Montreal was the cultural center. And it wasn't until the 70s that Toronto was like, okay, we got to step up our game here. Mm -hmm. And really started, it was already kind of the financial center of the city, but culturally, it was considered, the nickname was Toronto the Good. 
mm. you know, or Toronto the Boring. Right. Uh, even up until the 90s, there were areas of Toronto that, because of temperance, were dry. Right. That you couldn't buy alcohol. Like, I remember being a kid when we went to my great-grandma's place. It was in a dry area, so my father, if he decided he wanted to have beer, had to drive, like, 15 minutes to part of the city <laughs> where you could actually allow liquor. Right. So, this was around that time. Yeah, along was trying to entice up film productions. They're doing things like the Eden Center. The CN Tower was built two years before this. Mm. You know, really kind of forcing, like, no, Toronto consciously being like, we're going to change up our game and try, basically try to be a cool city that people would actually want to go to outside of living. Mm -hmm. So I find that contrast interesting, that that is going on. That this movie is kind of really very much about Toronto. Mm -hmm. So when I said Toronto is a character, like, it's not like when people would say in a Woody Allen film that New York is a character, that it's just really pretty shots of New York, mm -hmm. and they're walking around New York a lot. It's speaking a lot to what was going around in on in Toronto at the time, mm -hmm. which brings us to our third location of interest is the Silver Dollar Room. Most people in Toronto just refer to it as the Silver Dollar. It's a Toronto music venue landmark. Uh, we only see exterior shots in this film. The interiors were one of the, I think one of the few parts of this film shot in the soundstage mm -hmm. is the interior of what purports to be the Silver Dollar. I don't know exactly how old the Silver Dollar itself is, but it was located on the bottom floor of the Waverly Hotel, which was built in 1900. And the Silver Dollar had been around forever. By the time I was living in Toronto, it was pretty run down. Uh, it's a Toronto sort of jazz and blues club. I wasn't so much into that type of music when I was living in Toronto, so I didn't really go there a lot. There were other places, especially if I wanted to see jazz that I would go to. But it is a Toronto landmark, enough that when a building company wanted to tear down the Waverly Hotel, which at that point was the oldest operating hotel in Toronto, mm -hmm. that it had been almost 100 years when they wanted to do this, uh, there was a petition done and the Silver Dollar was declared a city landmark mm -hmm. and could it be destroyed. And for years, there was a sort of back and forth as to what to do with the space because it was a historical landmark. So they reached a deal that... Okay, you can tear down the building. Because it was just a silver dollar that was declared, declared the landmark. Not mm -hmm. the Waverly Hotel, which I find interesting. Mm -hmm. So they said, okay, you can tear down the building. But basically, you have to recreate the silver dollar. <laughs> and you have to keep the bar. You have to keep the mosaic floor. There was a long painting on a wall. You have to keep this. Like, there was a list of things that when they rebuilt the silver dollar that they had to replace right. as part of a sort of deal with it being declared a historical building, huh. which I find utterly fascinating. That's really cool. And I know that history doesn't have much to do with the silver dollar, but next time I'm in Toronto, I don't know if I'm actually going to get to stay in Toronto this trip, but I looked at photos online and it looks very, very nice. Is it like built into the side of a modern building now? or? Yeah, I don't know... I just kind of looked at pictures as to what the what it looks like now and the conditions. I know, I think it's it's probably condos above. Right, probably most likely condos, but it's still cool that they had to keep yeah. this silver dollar there at the same location with all the sort of list of things. Mm. Uh, I just thought it was really cool. But again, that's really neat that they focus on the silver dollar. That is another you know sort of Toronto landmark. If you had never been in the silver dollar, if you had spent any time in downtown Toronto, you had walked past that sign mm -hmm. and you know where that is. You know, to the point that, you know, giving directions, it would be like, okay, go down Spadina and turn right after the Silver Dollar. Right. You know, it would be that much of a touch point. But again, by this point, the Silver Dollar had kind of fallen along hard times. Like I said, it was kind of a dingy place that you didn't really go to 
when I was living in Toronto in the late 90s, early 2000s. But again, it's kind of cool that they went out of their way to show a Toronto landmark, mm-hmm. even if they couldn't shoot in it, yeah. to take the time to do the establishing shot yeah, of the silver dollar. Sorry, I was going to say, sorry, they, they, were, they were probably a lot less willing to uh, uh, shut down and let a bunch of cameras in than the Eaton Center. Or it might have just been that shitty yeah. inside. <laughs> True. Or it, I don't know if I've ever actually been in the silver dollar. It might be like really tiny in there yeah. and not really conducive to shooting. But anyways, yeah, so that I wanted to take the time to kind of address this. It's very much a Toronto film and those sort of three examples mm. of sort of what was going in Toronto and where Toronto was at at the time. I mean, I think it's really cool. The final shot of the film, spoilers, an ambulance driving off away from the Eden Center with the CN Tower in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's almost like the movie being like, you've seen some of the shittier parts of the city, but like, this is the future. Right. This the, At the time, the world's tallest freestanding structure. Right. The ambulance is driving towards that after spending most of the film in this fancy new, at the time, futuristic mall that architecturally was based upon the Crystal Palace in England. Right. See what I mean? It's an interesting Toronto film. Yeah. I, I Once even... you get into the roots of it, outside of the novelty of it taking place in Toronto, so front and center. Well, and I didn't even think of that aspect of like, goodbye old dingy Toronto, hello fancy new Toronto. Again, maybe I'm getting a little film school <laughs> yeah. with this, but especially when I started to read in the history of the Eden Center, the Abernathy, where mm-hmm. Elliot Gould and a lot of the film takes place, you know, and looking up a bit about the Silver Dollar. Because when I did watch the movie, I'm like, I wonder if the Silver Dollar is still open. And that's why I went into that deep dive as to what was going on, mm-hmm. especially with COVID. Like the Elma Combos, which is one of Toronto's more famous, is referred to as Toronto CBGBs. Mm-hmm. I know that it closed out about a decade ago at this point. So I was like, if the Elma Combo shut down, I'd be very surprised if the Silver Dollar was still in operation. Because they were both kind of shitty venues. Charming in their own way, but both kind of shitty. Yeah. But anyways, let's get back to the film proper. That's that's the, in my indulgence of what my research <laughs> uncovered. That my brain was like, this shit is super fascinating. <laughs> okay, so let's actually talk about the end of this film. I had brought up earlier that there were development things. That... I came across that I wanted to save until talking about later. So apparently the film was completed. And then the some sources said executives, some sources said producers. One of the two, if not both. This is a relatively low-budget Canadian film. Mm-hmm. $2.5 million, more than a lot of Canadian productions at the time, but still, in the big scheme of things, not an expensive production. Uh, saw the completed film that Daryl Duke had shot, and... Wanted to add some scenes. I have verified that these scenes are not in the original source novel. Mm -hmm. And were not in the original screenplay. And they are scenes that Daryl Duke disliked so much. And was perfectly happy with his film. That he basically said he refused to film. Right. At which point, Curtis Hansen kind of got his wish. He was brought on to direct these extra scenes. Right. This is where it is heavy spoiler territory. So... Fair warning, it's a great movie. Some of these scenes are great to see with fresh eyes mm-hmm. and not have spoiled for you. That's all I'm going to say. Those scenes are the murder, beheading, and the disposal of the body of Elaine. Played by Celine Lopez. Okay, so if that was added after the fact... Did she even exit the movie? Like, because because the, the finale otherwise doesn't really necessarily involve her. So did she just sort of 
not exit the movie in the original cut? This is one of those cases where I would love to see the original screenplay. Yeah. About how this pieces together. Because when you watch it with those eyes, because I knew this this time watching. Right. I didn't know this the last time we watched Society right. Partner. Because it is a very shocking scene. It's Oh, it's it's pretty grisly. Like, I was, I was pretty squicked out. And I'm not that hard to squick out. If anything, the earlier easy. scene that we talked about with Christopher Plummer, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know this for sure. Wouldn't surprise me if that was part of the reshoots. To show that he was capable of the level of violence of the scene at the end of the film. Right. Right? Because that actually doesn't have anything to do with him getting arrested partway through the film. Elliot Gould has that whole truck robbery thing that he concocts. Right. To get Christopher Plummer. So that earlier scene, I guess, only is there to show how violent he can be to explain the outburst in this film. Mm-hmm. Because his even his relationship with the character of Elaine doesn't even get explored that much. Did they work together in the past? Did he just find her off the street to help him this one time? Right. Does she even know Christopher Plummer well? Right. Like, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get explored that's not necessarily deterrent for the film. It's just the way the film is structured. You don't know a lot of character motivations. They don't really explore characters' past and why they're doing what they do. Mm. This is a reason why I wanted to look in and read a plot synopsis of the novel. Because I knew that these added scenes weren't in there. Mm -hmm. So that is why I looked into it and found out that, okay, that the Elaine character... You know, like I said, has a lot more agency in the original being part of this sort of cat and mouse thing. It's more between the three people. But unfortunately, the only plot synopsis that I could find kind of cuts off before the end explaining what happens. Right. So, first off, okay, we need to explain what happens here. Right. She basically tells Christopher Plumber to fuck off. He basically forces her to come to Elliot Gould's apartment. Mm-hmm. And when she basically starts pushing his buttons saying that she refuses to tell him where the money is, basically saying this is a spot on the floor where we had sex, I guess trying to goad him, even though they don't really establish that they ever had a relationship before. Well, they do a little bit when she's visiting him in prison, but yeah. A little bit, but again, they don't explain in detail. Yeah. Like, a lot is still up in the air. And he decides to attack and kill her, which includes beheading her on the fish stick. Yeah. At which point he leaves a body and... Forces Elliot Gould when he discovers the body because he can't call the police because then they might find out that he robbed the bank. Having to dispose the body, which includes putting her head in a plastic bag. Mm. It is kind of a gross film and even if they wanted to kill Elaine could have been different. I can understand why Daryl Duke didn't want to shoot the scene. If he had a pretty decent movie, why add that in? Number one, why would... Were the producers... What movie came out around this time that I can't think of that was popular enough that they were like... This isn't good enough. We need a shockingly violent death in this movie. Right. It's entirely possible that Christopher Plummer might have just, like, stabbed her. Or shot her. She still might have been killed. Right. Because, obviously, she's not at the end of the film. But, like, the decision, like, no, this has to be a super graphic. Like, usually, executives and producers want to play that stuff down. They'd Mm -hmm. be like, well, good movie. Do we really need to have her beheaded? (laughs) And him finding her head floating bloated in a fish tank? Right, like, who who did they think they were competing with that they needed to do that? These are answers I just do not have. But Curtis Hansen, I guess, decided, again, who's a screenwriter, just decided this is his way to get a foot in the door for directing. Even though it wasn't in the original screenplay, I presume he would have had to have written the script for these scenes. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, the only other part that I could assume would have to be reshot... Hmm... So the more I think about it, and I do apologize for my rambling, because I didn't really think too much about it before this conversation. Obviously, I think the 
attack scene in the sauna would have been added in earlier. Because that doesn't have any sort of real consequences for the character than to show how violent he could be. And then I would assume that Elaine still would have ended up being killed because at the ending, that's still motivation for Elliot Gould basically to be like, fuck off, I'll fucking kill you if I ever see you again. Mm -hmm. Not just because of the money and fucking with him, but because he killed this girl that even though she was dishonest with him, Mm -hmm. ostensibly he had feelings for. Mm -hmm. Again, I would really like to see the original screenplay. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to see that. Especially when the final product, as great as this movie is, the only two sort of sort of eh moments are the violence on women yeah. scenes, which again are are pretty shocking. And enough to say that if, if you're somebody who's super sensitive to that sort of stuff, mm. be very well aware before yeah. you watch those films. Because because yeah. it, it's like because they are gratuitous, right? Because the the movie could be could accomplish everything it's doing without it, and they just have this really leery gaze about it that is just uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. And I don't want to focus too much more on that because there's a lot to really, <laughs> a lot to really praise about the film, especially since it was you know such a groundbreaking Canadian production, right? For what it is, you know, the sort of beginning of this sort of era of filmmaking and of not only films being made in Canada and places like Toronto, but also being enticed up, like mm-hmm. really trying to stimulate the film industry. This is kind of like the perfect example of when that could actually work. Mm-hmm. I don't know, anything much more you want to say about The Silent Partner? We kind of, typical north yeah. of normal weird tangents and side yeah. journeys, but... I mean, well, weird tangent my own. I think what one thing that sticks out to me because I'm a dweeb is um, just the sort of... Some of the contrivances of how the, the sort of scheme and the heist sort of go on are such an interesting little anachronism or I guess just snapshot of like the way things work, like... I guess security culture in the seventies and, and, and the, and the way a, like a bank is structured, like, you know, they don't have cameras running 24 seven only when they're getting robbed because they don't have enough feet of tape to record or things like that. Of just like, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a heist that can only be constructed in seventies technology because none of that works. If everyone's got cameras 24 seven and, and I don't know, just, it was an interesting sort of uh, little, little, uh, time capsule I thought it definitely is and it goes back to what we were saying about it's kind of cool that they take the time to kind of go into some of the minutia mm-hmm. of working in a bank yeah at the time because the other theme of this is what needs to happen for you to leave your shitty job yeah which I think is a position we've all been in at some point I yeah. have had some jobs for way longer yeah. than I should have had them because you get comfortable and you get complacent for Elliot Gould it was being robbed, being fucked with by a psychopath, and having your kind of girlfriend murdered. That's to have him go, you know what? <laughs> Fuck banking. Yeah. It's soul-sucking, and I'm going to fucking leave this place with my stolen money. In the immortal words of Bruce McCulloch, screw the bank I work for. Screw the <laughs> bank. That's kind of a good place to end on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Colin, I, I'm super glad you decided to do this episode with me. I'm really glad you decided to watch it with me. Yeah, that one, one night when we were deciding what sort of movie to watch, I was like, listen, for the show, I've made you watch a lot of shitty movies. Please let me show you a good film. And that you reacted as positively as I did to it. I mean, you know me. I'm basically game for whatever. So, uh, And also a trash monster. So schlock is good. Good movies are great. I'll do, I'm game for whatever, man. Which is why you're kind of a perfect guest <laughs> for the show. Okay, Colin. Well, like I said, I am taken off to Ontario for a few weeks, but... I will be seeing you in a few weeks. Yeah. 
And to anybody that actually goes out of their way to listen to my voice every other week, I will be back on the airwaves probably in about a month. Nice. Find me on Mortal Kombat. Fighting you, cowards. And on that note, North of Normal is a product of Eldritch Creative that can be found on Facebook at Eldritch Creative and Instagram at Eldritch.Creative. North of Normal can be found on Facebook at North of Normal Pod and Instagram at North of Normal Pod. Intro music and outro music is by Dad vs. Son out of Hamilton, Ontario. That's it for now. Be seeing you.